Welcome to Talk Plus Water podcast number six. My name is Todd Votler. Talk Plus Water is associated with the Texas uh, Plus Water newsletter, a publication of the Meadow Center for Water and the Environment, the Texas Water Journal, and the Texas Water Resources Institute. My guest today is Lena Salome with Water Witness International and the University's Partnership for Water Cooperation and Diplomacy. Uh, Lena is in Paris. I'm in Austin. It's a beautiful early spring morning here in Austin. Lena, what's it like there? <laughs> it's gray and rainy. Hello, Todd. How are you? Oh, it's, I'm great. It's wonderful to talk to you again. Good to talk to you, too. Thank you for coming on uh, the podcast to talk about water. I've been really looking forward to this. You're the first uh, international um, interview that I've done. And so uh, hopefully the sound quality will be good the entire time. The, you know, there might be a couple of little glitches, but uh, if there are, we'll just kind of back up and go over something so that uh, everyone understands what we're talking about. And, you know, with that, why don't we go ahead and start with uh, a little bit about your background. Okay. So, um... Uh, Todd, as you mentioned, I'm uh, I'm based in Paris, and I was born in Lebanon. Uh, so I was exposed very early in my life to complex situations, to uh, conflictive um, uh, situations, as well as uh, um, mediation uh, processes, because I had to mediate early on between my father and my mother. So I have more than 40 years of experience in mediation. But <laughs> apart from that, uh, I studied law, and then I specialized in international law uh, at the Sorbonne in Paris um, and then after that I went and started working in UNESCO the United Nations Education and Scientific and Cultural Organization based in Paris well its headquarters are in Paris but it has offices all around the world um, and there I served for 17 years as its um, uh, program coordinator um, the program called PCCP, From Potential Conflict to Cooperation Potential, which focused on um, um, research, education, and capacity building and process, uh, conflict management processes um, related to transboundary waters all around the world. Um, and then uh, during that time, I um, I followed several uh, trainings uh, and education programs on negotiation, mediation, conflict management processes, and, um, and was able to adapt these uh, soft skills to the water um, topic and therefore um, uh, with several colleagues uh, and friends uh, of ours uh, I developed uh, many I mean lots of material related to these topics which can still be found on on internet uh, if you google UNESCO PCCP and then you'll find 
uh, heaps of material, uh, research uh, material, education material, training material uh, on these uh, on these topics. And then after 17 years, after I have given my youth to UNESCO, <laughs> I decided to move on. And now I'm serving as a um, trustee on the board of trustees of the uh, Water Witness International, a Scotland-based uh, NGO, um, as well as supporting the, um, the, 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 the university's partnership for transboundary water cooperation and diplomacy. It is uh, hosted by the University of Geneva. Uh, for the time being, and I guess we'll talk about it in more details later. So it sounded, it sounds like you you had a uh, background in mediation from the early years uh, of your life, and you moved to Paris, and you were studying law. And at what point did you start focusing on water, and and why water out of all the other regions of of conflict that there are that need some help so um actually i started um, um i started being interested in water by sheer accident uh when i was doing my uh, when i was uh, at the sorbonne we had to choose a topic for our um, research paper uh, i was doing the first year of a phd program at uh, in the french uh, system at that time um, and the teacher suggested a number of topics uh, one of them was uh, water in international law, and it was very new to me. I didn't even know that one could um, study uh, water in international law. So I, I chose it, and then I uh, became interested in it, and then I never stopped working on it since then. And actually, it turned out to be a good topic for me because, as if I don't, as some maybe of of the audience may know, my first name is Lena, and it's a river in Siberia, and my last name is Salame, which means peace. So um, maybe I was meant to work uh, on water and peace. It's, it sounds like you were. It sounds like you were. I don't. Ha I wish I had a name that suggested that. Mine's. Mine's not. Does it suggest that? Unfortunately. Uh, well, let me ask you about this. So, um, tell me more about uh, Water Witness International. Mm -hmm. So, Water Witness International is a, a charity based in Scotland. It was created in two thousand and eight. So, it's a relatively young organization, but it has grown very quickly and very efficiently. Um, it, uh, it employs around uh, 15 people now. Um, some of them are in Scotland and others are in Malawi or Tanzania. Um, and uh, they are all um, experienced scientists and, and development practitioners uh, with um, hands-on experience. Um, who are very nimble and very reactive um, and very enthusiastic. It's a very um, nice uh, atmosphere in, in this group. And their main mandate is to, um, uh, to, to improve uh, water security for people who need it the most. 
So they do that either through improving water stewardship. Um, and when they do that, they scrutinize the private sector and the financial institutions' performance uh, on water. And then they call them out on their bad practices. Um, and then they try to instigate change when it's needed. Uh, that's one um, uh, acts of, of intervention. And then another one, for example, is to improve govern governance and, and aid. Um, so for that, they, um, they undertake research, investigation, they use evidence to advocate for effective and equitable water use and governance. And, and one, I'm, I'm very proud to say that um, in the past five years, they have helped half a million people in improving their water security through social accountability. So they are um, uh, they are for the moment um, very active in Africa. Uh, but do you think maybe they'll be operating in other parts of the world eventually? Well, they, I, I hope so. Uh, I guess I understand that their objective is not to remain focused on Africa only. Uh, they work um, based on um, on the donations of uh, development agencies and uh, sometimes the private sector and um, development banks and so on. So um, I think that they have to adjust um, depending on the, the, their financial resources and um, the urgency of, uh, of, uh, of the needs um, where, they, uh, where they are and so on. So for the time being, they have been able to do a marvelous job in in Africa, uh, and I understand that if um, if there are possibilities with the potential they have, they will be able to grow beyond uh, Africa. Great, great. Now, tell me about the university's partnership for water cooperation and diplomacy. Uh, that's, mm -hmm. I guess, based at the uh, University of Geneva. Mm-hmm. So that that uh, the University Partnership for Water Cooperation and Diplomacy is a network of knowledge institutions, like-minded institutions that are all working on transboundary water cooperation, diplomacy, conflict management, uh, and who all want to make a real contribution to the global discourse on water cooperation and uh, diplomacy and the nexus of water and peace. Uh, so this is a partnership of the various institutions scattered around the world. Uh, its coordination unit is based in Geneva, at the University of Geneva. Um, and it has uh, a number of core members. So we have, uh, for the time being, the University of Geneva, Oregon State University, in the States, uh, the University of Peace in Costa Rica, uh, the Indian uh, Institute for Technology in India, of course, uh, the Kazakh German University in Kazakhstan, IMI, the International uh, Water Management Institute, um, and then we have another one, the University of Zimbabwe as well. So the idea uh, for these core members uh, is actually to be the driving force uh, behind this network and to set 
the platform where more uh, knowledge institutions and more I, I forget I forgot also a very important partner it's IHE Delft Institute for Water Education based in the Netherlands so these these core members are the driving engine uh, of that partnership um, they are the ones who are going to bring and attract more universities from around the world and uh, and encourage them to exchange um, uh, their research work, to transfer their knowledge, to uh, share uh, data um, um, uh, related to uh, water cooperation and diplomacy and to build and reinforce capacity building and training uh, programs uh, um, uh, around the world. So the idea is to have actually a platform, an online platform, and this will be ready in the spring, uh, to have an online platform where all the partners uh, will be able to put their um, products uh, um, there. And these will be uh, available for um audiences interested in the topic from around the world. So if you are a student in Latin America, for example, and you're interested in a study program or a, a student exchange program uh, with a university in Asia, for example, you'll be able to go and get the information on this platform. So it's a one-stop shop for everything related to, to the topic. Now we have uh, uh, almost 80 institutions who have indicated their interest in joining the, the, the partnership. Um, but I am calling and I'm using this, uh, this interview and this podcast to call uh, upon Latin American um, uh, institutions, knowledge institutions who are interested in the topic to come and join us uh, because um, for the time being, we don't have many Latin American actors. Huh. So uh, now, of course, I'm familiar with Oregon State University and the water conflict and, and management program that it has. Do If you're a student and you want to participate, does your university have to be a member of the partnership or could you be at a a university that is not a member and still access this information and maybe find a way to, to study at a university in, a, in another country. Absolutely. There will be uh, programs that are joint programs um, among members of the partnership. Um, and it will probably facilitate a lot of things for the students. Uh, however, if you are a student of a university um, in um, a university that is not part of the partnership, you can still access the information and find a way to get there. Um, you can also uh, be a, a researcher in a research institute uh, that is not part of the partnership and then get information about research positions that are uh, interesting to you in a different part of the world. So it's it's a place where the partners will be able to make exchanges uh, and to reinforce their um, impact, to enhance their impact um, and uh, to improve the global discourse on water cooperation and diplomacy. But it's also for our audience a place where they can access all types of information that they could be interested in. So uh, is the goal to have a partner in every country, a partner institution in every country, 
Uh, and uh, for example, um, you know, would you want more than one partner institution in a country, and, and you, would you want other U.S. partners besides Oregon State? You know, how how does that work? Mm -hmm. So ideally, we would have uh, a balanced uh, coverage throughout the globe. Um, for the time being, it's not the case because we just started uh, a year ago. Uh, th this whole in initiative actually existed and was initiated um, more than 20 years ago, but then at some point it went to sleep a little bit, and then it was revived a year ago. So in this past year, uh, we have... Uh, uh, I mean, we have attracted uh, a few institutions and we do not have a global coverage yet. Uh, we are aiming at that. but And of course, we accept more than one institution from uh, one country. The idea is not to exclude anyone, uh, but to include anyone who is has the potential to contribute to the network and who wants to do so. So if uh, there are other institutions in the United States that are interested in joining, would they uh, contact you or would they contact maybe uh, Aaron Wolf or somebody else at Oregon State and kind of find out about the program and then go from there? What would, you, what would be the suggested route? Okay, so they can contact you because you are also <laughs> part of the network. They can, of course, uh, contact Professor Aaron Wolf at Oregon State University. Uh, they can contact me as well. Uh, you, you, it, my coordinates will be available. Uh, I understand on your uh, uh, on your platform, and then we will take it from there. So, if any U.S. Uh, institution or um, or Latin American institutions, for that matter, wants to join or is interested in, in exploring the possibilities to join the, the network, they're welcome to contact us in any way they can. And then uh, they will end up being in touch with me, and then I'll guide them through the process. So let me kind of, uh, you know, drill down into, uh, I guess, maybe the... Uh, the, the genesis for the partnership, is it, uh, you know, I hear frequently people say, you know, water uh, is often an area of diplomacy and cooperation that can lead to uh, cooperation in other areas that are maybe more difficult for nations to, to, to breach or broach. What's broach? I think it's broach. Uh, and so, you know, I'm interested in, have you, have you kind of seen this play out? Uh, and the work that you've done where where two nations were able to to start working together on water that maybe eventually that led to other forms of cooperation mm -hmm. so th there are two things that I would like to um, uh, to to um, outline before. Uh, answering this question. The, the interaction between water and conflict, um, it can happen in two different situations. Either you have a negative interaction between two countries because of water, uh, and that's made, that what some people call water conflicts or water disputes or um, or water wars, which is not true uh, right. as a, a footnote. Um, and then you have also situations where water is a victim or a tool within a conflict on something else. Or water is one factor 
uh, among other factors within uh, of a conflict. Okay, so um, first of all, there is a study that was undertaken by Oregon State University that shows that um, that uh, water is never the only reason uh, because of which two nation states will wage war against each other. There are more reasons to cooperate than reasons to um, have a conflict uh, around water. Um, and then um, there are no actual uh, water wars uh, in the in, in recent history um, because two nations don't go, two states don't go to war for one reason anyway. Water can be the final um, uh, straw that in- broke the camel's back. Exactly, but it is not because of water that uh, that uh, states go to war. Actually, they never go to war because of one reason, as I said. So we have to make the difference between the, the situations where we have a water conflict and the situation where water is um, is impacted by a conflict on something else. So um, in, in, in those cases where water... Is uh, is the when we have a water conflict when there is a divergence of view of views between two uh, states on um, the use of water resources or the management of water resources. there are, there are, as I said, more reasons to solve the, uh, the to solve the conflict and to go for cooperation than there is for. Uh, uh, conflicts. Uh, in the case, for example, of the pulp mills uh, between uh, that that um, opposed uh, Uruguay to Argentina um, because of uh, a story of pollution of pulp mills that were uh, built by Uruguay on the Rio Uruguay and Argentina uh, was against that and the, the population in, in Argentina went on strike and blocked the bridge between the two countries and so on. The, the, the two countries were in in total um, uh, conflict for that, and they went to the International Court of Justice, and it took some time for them to solve their issue. And at the end, they went back and had to cooperate. In the meantime, there were the, the 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 relationship between the two countries suffered. Uh, the um, the environment in uh, in the basin suffered. Uh, the people uh, locally suffered, uh, and then at the end they were sent back by the International Court of Justice to cooperate and negotiate in good faith. Same thing in the situation of the Gapčikovo Najmaros case between Hungary and Slovakia, but that took a much longer time. It took almost ten years for the International Court of Justice to um to solve the issue and how, how did it solve it it also sent back the two countries to uh negotiate in good faith without saying who has to uh, compensate whom for how much uh, in the meantime the environment uh has um 
suffered and the relationship between the two countries was strained. So these are two examples that shows that the conflict over water uh, is, uh, it, I mean, the state, states have more reasons and uh, to cooperate rather than to bring their conflict to a higher level uh, of negativity. It is um, environmentally, financially, politically and strategically not a good investment to uh, go for conflict. Also, we know that according to natural laws, nobody can be uh, deprived from their um, uh, access to water. Uh, there is a whole ethical and, and, and legal side of it, so you cannot uh, really deny water has a special uh, characteristic. It's a special resource um, that that you cannot actually um, go for a conflict or war because of it. So that's one reason. And then I can see in the case of the Jordan River uh, that, for example, water has been used uh, as one component among others between Israel and Jordan to um, reach an agreement, the peace treaty agreement between Jordan and and uh, and Israel. So. Um, it did it did facilitate the cooperation because it enlarged the pie in the negotiation over other issues such as security religion uh, territory borders and so on and so forth um, so yeah water does uh, does uh, improve the chances of cooperation and conflict over water is not uh, an intelligent uh, way uh, to go. Then there is another um, uh, point, that's the situation where water is a victim of a conflict. Uh, so, you know, the international... Um, uh, the international humanitarian law uh, has provisions that uh, want to protect water infrastructures and water resources during times of uh, conflict. And I'm talking about the 1977 protocols uh, to the Geneva, um, additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions of 49. Um, and there are many other uh, instruments of humanitarian law that wants to protect these resources, not only because they are vital for the survival of the people and for the survival of um, uh, the peacekeeping uh, uh, operations, but also because later, after the conflict, water can be an instrument to build peace and to maintain peace. So if you don't bring back water to the territories that suffered from conflict, you cannot uh, guarantee peace and you cannot maintain peace. So bringing water back and uh, and allowing the local communities to um, access water and to manage their water resources is a way to uh, actually um, construct peace and build it so and, and maintain it. So you see, in whatever angle you look uh, at it, there is a, a real linkage between water and peace that is much stronger and that makes much more sense uh, than, than conflict over um, 
uh, over water. And then a final note maybe to say that an investment in water is actually the best investment that one can make because, first of all, there is a very good risk-return profile for such an investment. It's an investment that is sustainable, that is a long-term uh, investment. It is multi-sectoral. It is blended, public-private. Uh, it increases diversification uh, of investments because it, if it's on transboundary uh, basins, then you have various different um, uh, reasons to invest for quality, for quantity, for um, for uh, uh, tourism, for whatever, uh, you name it. And uh, because uh, also uh, then you engage many actors so they are committed to cooperation and then it increases the, the chances for uh, engaged uh, cooperation. So water is the best investment one can make. So financial <laughs> institutions and development agencies, don't, don't, don't pull yourself back. Don't keep yourself from investing in this, um, in this area. Well, I'm just, so I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm, just thinking how many of the things that you just touched that I've encountered here in the United States and here in Texas, you know, where we're encouraging um, our uh, lawmakers in the legislature and in Congress to invest more in water and uh, how um, you have a lot of situations where uh, two entities end up in court and uh -huh. nothing is really resolved, and, and they end up eventually having to sit down and, and negotiate uh, some kind of agreement that they can live with, often by enlarging the pie, which you, you mentioned. Uh, I've been involved with one dispute where that was one of the key elements of its resolution, is um, it was broadened to include many more stakeholders and some, and some other significant additional issues in a region. And so, uh, you know, really that's, there's lots of commonal, commonality. And, uh, but our system is, is different than uh, I think what goes on in Africa and Latin America and the EU. And so I'd be interested in hearing a little bit about how uh, France and the EU manage uh, water conflicts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, in France, actually, you have several layers of um, institutions and several laws that organize uh, the the water management um, uh, system. So um, so you have the, the the within a European framework, you have a French system uh, that wants to make a real balance between development and environmental protection. These are really the guiding uh, the guiding lines. So. Uh, in France, you have these are the objectives, and then you have, from an institutional point of view, for the the the, the management of the different river basins in in uh, France is made on the basis of the borders of river basins. So you have uh, six river basins in uh, in France, in continental 
France, let's say. Then you have an additional one in Corsica, and then you have five others in uh, in um, overseas France. And the whole management system is based on uh, the river basin management uh, system. For every basin, you have uh, a number of institutions. Uh, you have a basin committee that is like a parliament for uh, the management of the basin with different representatives. I'll get back to it later. You have a water agency uh, that is actually like um, uh, the main actor and uh, for the management of the of the the basin. I'll come come back to it uh, as well. And then you have um, a, co- a, a basin coordinating um, préfet, which is like the super mayor. Uh, that is going to coordinate among the different, uh, 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 how do we say, the different um, um, communities that are involved uh, in the basin. So you have this system, you have this parliament type of thing, you have the water agency, and then you have the coordinating uh, unit. And then you have um, um, a a committee at the level of the whole nation, of the whole state, that is the National Basin Committee that gives advice on uh, issues related to water policies and and big questions of water management. So these uh, these institutions were set up in the 60s, in 64. Um, And then their uh, mandate has evolved. Uh, And then in the 90s and in the year 2000, more uh, laws were adopted. And then their, their role became the role of the water agency really developed and it, it started to be responsible to fight against pollution, uh, to where it broadened its uh, scope of action to aquatic environments. Um, it also supports the work of development programs and the removal of obstacles like dams and other kind of structures because um, of the program on to restore ecological continuity. And then um, they also started to be uh, responsible for fighting against diffuse sources of pollution from agriculture. So this ba- these basins organizations are the main actors in setting up, uh, um, let's say, a scheme uh, for the management of, of the basin. Uh, and they call it SDAG, S-D-A-G-E, which is Schema, Euh, pour le développement et l'aménagement de la gestion des ressources en eau. So, this agency is going to set up at the level of the basin this scheme, this plan, this like a master work plan for the management of the water resources, and it's going to be responsible uh, of implementing it. It's going to also receive money for uh, from polluters and then pay money for those who want to fight against pollution and so on. So this is what we have at the level of uh, France. Now, um, in the year 2000, the Water Framework Directive was adopted at the uh, level of the whole uh, con- of, I mean, at the whole the whole EU, the whole European Union, and the Water Framework Directive set a number of standards in terms of quality of quantity and quantities of water in the different rivers in Europe, 
and uh, every country had to uh, then determine uh, their uh, action plan to respond to these objectives. Uh, and then they could be even fined by the EU if they don't uh, meet the, these objectives and so on. So in France, they adopted a law that is um, translating the, the EU framework directive to the level of uh, France. And then these basin committees, basin agencies became also the main actors in implementing the EU framework directive. So that's it. You have a whole, you have a framework, uh, a European framework, and then you had the French system that adapted to the European objectives. And the whole, uh, the, the, the guiding, the main guiding principles for uh, the, the, the water management in France is to combine development with environmental sustainability so you know i can i can just see some of my friends um you know kind of uh you know shrugging and saying well that sounds a lot more complicated than what we have here but i'm not really sh completely sure that it is i mean we have uh you know federal oversight from a number of different federal agencies and each state has a different set of uh, state agencies that might be involved, and then you'll have local agencies. Some some, some states on the um, on the river or watershed uh, basis, um, and then you might have groundwater districts. Um, we have a hundred in Texas. We've got uh, I think it's what twenty four, twenty five, maybe. Uh, 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 river uh, authorities in the state and then you know the neighboring states have a somewhat different system and we have to coordinate with them which we do via a compact or or some other mechanism and and so uh, you know all these systems are, are pretty complex and uh, you know that's one of the things that I've always um you know, been, uh, you know, acutely aware of is that, you know, water is complicated um, and managing it is complicated. And, you know, pe I, I frequently get people ask me a question thinking that, well, the answer will be pretty simple. And it almost never is. And uh, it's got lots of qualifiers. And, and so... Uh, you know, I guess I'm, I'm, you know, supposing that's really kind of the way it is everywhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, it, I think that it, it, as a, a common friend of ours says always that uh, water management is conflict management, right? Yeah. So it doesn't mean that uh, you have a war over water, you have conflicts. It's normal to have conflicts. It's inherent to human nature. Whenever you have a shared resource, you're going to have conflicts because you're going to want different things from your partner or your counterpart. So conflict is inherent to, 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 to human nature. That's one thing. And then a vital resource such water, which is, which is uh, actually a sine qua non for any type of development, um, is really a reason for competition. So there is going to be competition all the time on water, and competition can be um, can can worsen in some situations and develop into a conflict. And then conflict can be of different.
different um, levels. It can be just um, like um, a normal conflict of uh, diverging views, or it can be a conflict with, that is accompanied by economical or financial or political, um, um, how do you say, uh, how do you say, uh, punishments or whatever. Uh, so. So there are always conflicts when you are uh, sharing or managing a common resource. Uh, but then the, the, the main point is to anticipate them and then to be able to management should they arise. That's the real issue. I mean, you cannot have a world without uh, water conflicts or without any kind of conflicts for that matter. The only uh, thing is to actually um, uh, have the ammunition to anticipate them, to prevent them if possible, and then to mitigate them should they arise. Um, and uh, so in France, for example, they have they are very much based on anticipation and prevention uh, because these water parliaments are the ones where all types of water users are involved. They are uh, consulted. They have um, uh, their public participation right is very much guaranteed. And then they have to say something about uh, the, poly the water policies and the management uh, scheme so that everybody's heard and that conflicts are um, avoided. At the EU level, on the other hand, when you are dealing with transboundary water resources, uh, you have a convention that is called the 1992 Helsinki Convention on Transboundary um, uh, Water Courses and international lakes, and that convention that is um, that was at the beginning only uh, limited to EU countries is now open to the whole world uh, for accession. So any states, like an Arab state, an African state, or a Latin American state, can access this convention. But now our interest is the EU uh, countries. So EU countries, if they have a problem related to the transboundary management of uh, a river basin, um, they can either uh, go for um, amicable uh, solution, this this is the provision of the convention, so they have to go through negotiation, or they can go to the International Court of Justice, or they can set up an arbitration um, uh, uh, panel and then go through arbitration. So th th these are all the means of conflict resolution that 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 have to be um, uh, looked uh, at when there is a, a conflict and if there was no possibility to prevent it. So I want to change direction a little bit here and ask you about your work with uh, transboundary aquifer issues in Central America. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm curious how those countries are addressing those types of issues and, uh, you know, what are the more pressing issues they're trying to resolve? We, you know, we just don't hear that much about that uh, here in the U.S. We're not, we're a lot closer uh, to Central America than you are, uh, but uh, we just don't hear a lot about it, about what's going on there. So actually in South America, you have 29 transboundary aquifers, okay, so 29 bodies of uh, water that are shared by two or more countries and that are under the ground. 
this is one fact. Another fact is that there is very limited information and knowledge about their dimensions, their geological characteristics, the water reserves that are available, the exploitation rates, um, or their role in regional development, or the, the recharge rates, and so on and so forth. So there are 29 transboundary aquifers. They are not very well known. The surface water in Latin America is much more important than the groundwater. And yet the use of groundwater resources to respond to water demand is it varies between 40 and 60 percent of uh, countries' demand huh? of, in, in, in response. In so there States. is... So that's what we call, that's what Todd Jarvis, our friend, yeah. calls a hydroschizophrenia. <laughs> Say so that again. Get, I want to make sure everybody heard that. It's hydroschizophrenia, copyright <laughs> Todd Jarvis uh, and his co-authors. So there is this hydroschizophrenia because we don't know very well the groundwater resources in Latin America, and yet we are using it a lot. Uh, so in in the beginning of the, the years 2000, um, the whole epistemic community, the development agencies, all kinds of intervention institutions started getting interested in 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 this topic and started all kinds of program, research program, education programs, data collection programs to get to know a little bit better groundwater transboundary groundwater resources in Latin America, and. That little by little, that led to, for example, in the case of the Guarani Aquifer, it led to a real collaboration between the scientists and the states and the development agencies and 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 the scientific agencies. It and then it ended up with an actual agreement on the Guarani Aquifer system that was signed in August 2010. Um, so this shows how, uh, like, there, there, while there is a very, a very big um, knowledge gap, uh, uh, it shows how real collaboration on data collection and scientific um, uh, matters can lead to an actual political um, cooperation. Uh, but, but this with a little grain uh, of salt because. Even if uh, the scientists and the, 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 the development agencies and all these third parties' interventions want to um, encourage cooperation and collaboration and data collection and better knowledge and of the, the groundwater resources, um, at the end, the political will is going to really make the difference. So if there is real political will, then an actual agreement and collaboration will be set up. If not, then it doesn't happen. But the Guarani Aquifer System Agreement is a good example because it um, it, it started in the right way uh, through the collaboration between the different communities, and then it used uh, the the draft articles on the groundwater uh, on the transboundary groundwater uh, law that were 
um, developed under the influence of the um, of the General Assembly of the United Nations, uh, and it really used all the main principles of these draft uh, articles, uh, such as uh, territorial sovereignty um, and then um, uh, right to promote the management, monitoring, and sustainable utilization of the aquifer system, equitable and reasonable use, utilization, obligation not to cause harm, etc., etc., the, the obligation to cooperate, the obligation to exchange uh, information and data, and then it also um, gave provisions to set up um, uh, gas commission, so a Guarani Aquifer System Commission, and then it also gave provisions for the resolution of conflicts should they arise. So, in on paper, the 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 agreement is really is really a, a good agreement. Now, um, I, I understand that it has not entered into force yet, but I may be uh, mistaken. I have not updated my information yet. This may be a homework for our listeners. They could go <laughs> and find the, uh, what happened with the gas uh, agreement. That sounds like a good assignment for them. So, <laughs> so I want to close with this question. Um, so you've done uh, training all over the world and uh, in conflict resolution uh, for water disputes. And so what I'm interested in is what are the areas of training that, that, that almost always seem to be the most beneficial for the, the people who are uh, in the, uh, the class that you're teaching? Mm-hmm. So there, are, the, the, I will maybe say three things. First of all, every area, every, every field of, um, uh, uh, every topic uh, related to the training, uh, to training on on water cooperation, transboundary water and water diplomacy, is important for every audience because so far. Um, uh, programs have been a little bit um, uh, unisectoral, you know, like lawyers are studying law, engineers are studying engineering, uh, historians are studying history, um, and so on. Social scientists are studying uh, social sciences. But transboundary water management is about bringing all these people together and then making them understand each other. So um, the main the the main um, challenge is. Okay, there we go. Now it's working again. Um, so so at any rate, you know I I've, I've seen that work in person where uh, you know the training really is is the key, uh, and uh, the simulations are the the key part of the training. It, it occurs to me, and uh, so. Um, yeah, and I think, uh, I think we're, you know, on the same page on that for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I tell you what, I, this has been a great conversation and even though we've had a few technical glitches, um, at least the neighbor's dog stopped barking right before <laughs> we started, started recording. So, um, so that's good news. Um, and, uh, you know, this was fun. I, I want to. Thank you, uh, Lena, for doing this. And, uh, you know, we will uh, hopefully have uh, 
some chance to to work together again in the future. Hopefully, yes. I'm looking very much looking forward to it. And thank you, Todd, for this opportunity. Oh, well, you're most welcome. So this has been uh, Talk Plus Water, podcast number six. My guest was Lena Salome with Water Witness International and the university's Partnership for Water Cooperation and Diplomacy. Thank you for joining us and listening in.